Okay, so this is Journeys in Podcasting, a morning session. We're connecting here from Bogota. Diego and I are both in different places. I'm Chris, and we'll be talking to Apple Distinguished Educator, uh, blogger, author, uh, Monica Burns, and I'm sure she has many other uh, areas she can fill in, too. Uh, Monica, how are you today? Wonderful. Thank you both for having me. Very excited to be here. And where are you connecting from? Are you in New York? I am based in um, based in New York, and I'm here for the whole week, which doesn't happen very often. So, really cherishing seven consecutive days uh, working from home. Um, but it's been a, a busy travel season, all good things. But yes, yeah, so New York is my home base. And what else are you involved in that we should know about? Uh, we, we know about you know your Edutopia presence. We know about your different articles. Um, I read your book this week. Um, what else should we know? Well, I'm a former New York City public school teacher, and I've been out of the classroom for a few years now, focusing not only on the writing, which is something I'm, I'm passionate about, but also um, being on the ground and, and in classrooms working with teachers. So I do a good deal of professional development, um, working with teachers across the country, and then speaking um, both nationally and internationally um, about that work and best practices for, for tech integration. That's uh, very interesting, Monica. Were you always a classroom teacher, or were you, were you some kind of uh, technology specialist or coordinator? Or how, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how you made that uh, jump from being a classroom teacher to, you know, uh, integrating more tech and then becoming uh, and starting to work in this professional development setting. Just just because, you know, I was thinking for some teachers, it's kind of hard like at the beginning to you know start integrating and using more tech in the classroom for some of them it, it looks like something that's like a very huge task like something that might be complicated I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that and mm -hmm. like what made you in those topics and what made you want to integrate more tech in the class so I started teaching with uh, chalkboards in my classroom um, so it was a, a quick step to that smart board that I wrestled out of a storage closet that someone had gotten delivered and, and no one knew how to use and you know ordered different wires on Amazon just trying to make things work always kind of thinking about that you know let's fix it we can find the answer type of um, use for the technology that we did have and then um, in 2011 my school um, received magnet funding so that's federal funding to change to a kind of a thematic curriculum which included a budget a line item for technology and so I was a great team leader at that time and part of the magnet leadership team and I kind of made that push for let's try these iPads they're here they're available no one really knows exactly what we're doing with them but we had some netbooks that just were breaking all the time and kind of a mess and it was a, a neat opportunity to try something new um, to go one-to-one. -one. And so at that time, you know, we didn't have the money for purchasing apps for the iPads. And New York State was struggling to figure out the best way to make it happen logistically, right, to make those type of purchase orders and that sort of thing. Um, this is before Apple Configurator, before those kind of big de deployment options. And so Apple Education had asked me to speak um, on their behalf at one of their events to teachers to just kind of explain to them some of the ways that they could use free apps, different types of things that were out there um, to help people get started. And 
I was asked by you know the the audience members, what's your what's your website, what's your blog, what's your Twitter handle, all things that I just did not think of, you know, within the four walls of my classroom. I was really happy um, being a classroom teacher. I did not have the interest in taking on an out of classroom kind of admin admin role um, at that time, but. The work that I started doing with my writing, having opportunities to speak and travel and, and do that training with teachers was something that um, you know, I just became passionate about really quickly. And so I had some opportunities to transition, um, take some of the small projects I had been working on while I was in the classroom and turn that into what I do now full time, which is mostly you know, teacher training and on the ground, a good deal of writing. And then some work where I'm helping other companies think about, you know, if they're kind of up to par with what teachers are looking for in terms of their product development. You mentioned that your first experience is integrating tech or, or working with a thematic curriculum. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we look at everything from TPAC to TIMS to the SAMR model to activity theory to the 3E, triple E framework. Um, to the ASD student standards, to Henry Jenkins and new literacies, to Thornburg's metaphors of human interaction, um, and all these different ways of connecting design, space, and technology. How do you think about it? Like when you integrate tech, is it just a tool that you put in there, or do you have like a special framework that you, you use? A phrase that I, I use all the time, and, and anyone who's sat in a workshop or a presentation of mine has, has heard me say it, um, is tasks before apps. Right. We have all these great tools. You know, I'm a curator of content for sure. If you visit my blog, there's there's lots and lots of things to to kind of dive into and, and get excited about, but we really want to make sure we're putting the learning first. And there are some great frameworks for, for thinking about just that. Um, really identifying the, the topics, the objective, the goals for students, which might be for everyone in the class or might be individually, might be very content-based, might be more of a soft skills, um, and then thinking about what tools are out there that can really make that experience um, more energized, um, make it more relevant, make it more connected to the real world. So that task before apps is a phrase that I use all the time, just trying to kind of let's put the learning first, let's come back to this, you know, I'm excited about this um, and how this looks. And it's so important with the augmented reality piece where we might have that kind of gimmicky um, Pokemon Go grabbing our attention, but then there's the now what, right? Um, what is our, What are we going to do with this? Um, why is this purposeful? Is this meaningful? You know, there's something to be said for that hook and grabbing someone's attention, um, but you have to be ready to follow that up and, and really pack a punch with something meaningful. Yeah, I, I did a bit of Pokemon Go playing to prepare for this interview, um, as, as well as um, watching Ariana Grande and Jimmy Fallon Snapchat. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, no, but seriously, we've been on this theme of reprogrammable architecture, which I think is your idea of connecting what's going on in the classroom beyond, um, especially this teachers and students taking ownership of their learning spaces and thinking as archaeologists by asking if this classroom were excavated in the future, what would it say about our pedagogy? In chapter eight uh, of your book, it's uh, student stakeholder learning and setting your community up for success. You mentioned educators customizing school spaces. I wonder if you could unpack a little bit about how powerful scannable tools are for educators and students in owning their, their environments. I think it's huge. Um, and I love that you kind of start off and focus there because when it comes to really thinking about learning spaces and making sure that things are 
are meaningful for students, there's there's a lot of layers there. And so for me, one thing that really jumps out is this idea of being able to customize spaces where you're really pushing to empower students to go exploring, to see things in the appropriate context, as well as using spaces to showcase work. And when we're really having students create on digital devices, you know, there's a lot of options for sharing um, those products. But scannable technology makes it very quick and easy um, and really something that can be sustainable as well. So there's really two sides that I see to it. The first being that idea of providing areas where students can interact with content in a place that's really meaningful. It could be something as simple as having you know, QR codes connected to book trailers, um, you know, on a book bin <laughs> in, a, in a classroom library. You know, or it could be something as dynamic as having students, you know, pick apart a timeline of an important event in history, um, history uh, video of that person, going green screen, layering all these wonderful things, and then placing that in an environment where other students can scan that augmented reality trigger they've designed and see the progression of events happen over time. So, you know, it could be something where you have students really set up the creators of that. Um, or it could be something where you're just really setting up the space, um, letting students explore, and really pushing that, that idea of, of curiosity. Sorry, I'm trying to get my mic unmuted. Um, you've written about Rayshan Richard's uh, Explain Everything app. And for, with us, this was one of the most mind-blowing applications that we picked up on immediately when we started using iPads in this ability for deepening metacognition, for broadening the modalities accessible to student expression. Um, and in, with its latest updates this year, a pretty powerful live-time collaborative tool how do you interrelate a tool like Explain Everything with Scannable Tech? Do you, do you see integration points there? Yeah, and just you know, a huge shout out to Rashawn Richards and the work that they're doing at Explain Everything. I and mean, when I um, when I work with teachers and, and we talk about you know really looking for quality over quantity and developing meaningful tasks that connect to learning objectives, you know, Explain Everything is something where you can just capture so much of students student thinking, um, huge when it comes to formative assessment, which is an area that I've been thinking a lot about with technology tools this past year, and I'm working on a, a project right now um, under that umbrella. But from a scannable sense, you know, I introduce um, the ACES framework in my book, um, Deeper Learning with QR Codes and Augmented Reality, and the S in that framework is really all about sharing student work. So if you have students that are creating on Explain Everything, who are making tutorials, who are creating short animated clips, um, who are just demonstrating how to solve or how to do, you know, fill in the blank. Um, you can really get those pieces off of their device and into spaces where students can interact with them organically um, and using scannable technology to do that. So, you know, you might have those Explain Everything creations uploaded to a YouTube channel, which Explain Everything gives you so many wonderful um, integrations to make that happen really easily. Um, but then grabbing that link to that creation, connecting it to a QR code, having it pop off an augmented reality trigger. You know, one of my um, 
my favorite examples for tutorials, especially ones made with explain everything, is you know here in, in the states um, there's a lot of a lot of discussion. I think it's misguided sometimes um, from poor marketing around the Common Core standards, and so you have a lot of instruction taking place in classrooms and strategies that are just different than what older brothers and sisters and parents learned when they were in school. So you have kids coming home and families that are frustrated because they just don't know how to support them with their homework or studying or assignments. So grabbing a tutorial, something that was made with Explain Everything, maybe another student created something on Explain Everything, and then connecting that to a QR code on the bottom of that activity sheet on a QR code that was printed out on sticky labels and peeled and put into their old school notebook. <laughs> Yet um, this is really going to just pop up um, off the page and, and give them that, that right now intervention. You've already touched on uh, this idea of reaching authentic audience, but I, I want to kind of ask it in a different way. We've been um, looking, we, we have a project that's kind of slowly developing called Hacking Active Learning Spaces where we take Thornburg's metaphors of human interaction and we look at ways of defining classroom spaces and connecting space with purpose. Um, a, a big part of this thinking is centered around the life or the mountaintop where learning gets transferred into the real world or where it goes before an authentic audience. Um, I know you mentioned several times in your book and you've got several places in your blog. I wonder if you could sort of unpack some of the ways that QR codes and other forms of augmented reality um, it, make the classroom walls transparent and, and reach a larger authentic audience? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And, and for me, I really see that as two parts, right? One is that connection to what we talked about with sharing creations. So there's just terrific um, free, you know, BYOD, bring your own device, good for whatever you've got, um, creation tools. I'm, you know, of course, Explain Everything's a good example. Um, Adobe Spark is one I'm very excited about. I've had the chance to really share that across um, across the country at a few different events this past year. And, um, and it's a tool where you can make your own websites, make your own videos, right? So students need to have a purpose, and that's where that authentic audience comes in. They need to know whose eyes are going to be on that product. And if we can connect them with digital tools, they're now creating a website that looks like that website they visited you know, yesterday. They're creating a clip that looks like a commercial they viewed on YouTube. And now we just need to make sure other people are going to see it. Um, and that could be something where we're tweeting it out, where we're, you know, we're sharing that link um, in a social manner, um, or it could be saying, you know what, you know, your audience is very clear. We are sending these videos um, to the school board meeting. We're going to put them on all the flyers so everyone can see just why you think it's so important that we build a baseball field and not a soccer field um, for the public service announcement or persuasive video you made and connect that to a QR code, put it in everyone's hands um, and and let everyone kind of see that work. And, you know, the, the important part about that is really building a culture and in your school and, and developing that with, you know, throughout the community of what does it mean to scan for more information? Um, we see QR codes in funny places, you know, on drink coasters, on the back of a ketchup bottle. You know, I'm here in New York um, and in New York City, you know, I'll often see QR codes underground in the subway where I have no service. I couldn't scan it if I wanted to. And so there's this idea that we need to build this capacity and the stakeholders, students, families, anyone who's going to interact with these student creations 
anyone who's going to be their authentic audience, we need to show them how to access this information. And so having those um, kind of student ambassadors at an open school night, you know, who are like, give me your phone, I'll download that QR code scanner for you and, and that sort of thing, or grab an iPad for the cart. This is how you can see my video. And just building that sense of, um, you know, I'm curious, I want to see what's behind here, and I know that there will be be a payoff when I scan this beyond just liking, a, you know, a catch-up bottle's Facebook page. You know, I've talked to uh, a couple of educators, uh, Paul Darvasi, who has something called pervasive learning, and Michael Matera, and both of them use this augmented reality and augmented reality gamification where they gamify their classroom. And it's a lot on the same thing you're talking about where they plant things in the environment where the students really don't know where the next clues are coming from. And in doing so, it makes them that much more, you know, observe, they observe much more closely. They're always looking for this kind of next thing. Um, how else have you seen like augmented reality affect the way that kids like look at their classroom space, you know, or well, now everything can become a trigger. Everything can become a link to something else. And that's just what it is, right? You, you open a world for students and it could be something where, you know, you are taking what's in your classroom, what's always been there, right? That poster, that anchor chart, that word wall, and snapping a picture and using something quick and simple like Erasma and turning it into an augmented reality trigger. And you'll link and see a video that will play to explain what that definition means on your social studies bulletin board or watch a video of the desert instead of just looking at a map and wondering what it might look like if you were there. And so there's lots of things you can do. One of my favorite tools for creating augmented reality triggers, I mentioned this a few times in the book in the context of, a, of an organization's um, library, LitWorld is a nonprofit I work with, but the tool Canva, C-A-N-V-A, I mentioned a few times in the book and have some some pictures of that in action. It's a graphic design and poster making tool. I use it for the images on my blog, um, but it's perfect for creating augmented reality triggers. And so you can take that image, um, you can upload that image to say something like BlipR has a, a great educational, a great dashboard that's you know available for educators. And then you can decide you know what that animation is going to look like, how the buttons are going to pop across the screen. Um, it's it's really something that that can take your practice to the next level. And the examples that you mentioned of students not quite being sure, you know, where to look, you know, that's what we want. We want their wheels spinning. We want them thinking about, you know, what might pop off their page. And for teachers who are looking to just get started, there's a great deal of content available. Um, the folks at Daiquiri, you know, have their Elements app, which not only is just neat if you're interested in chemistry, but they have lesson plans on their website as well. You know, so there's there's a lot of people who are who are going beyond just the gimmick factor of you know as much as I love you know a shark popping off the page. If you're not using it to inspire writers or to make connections to an ecosystem, then it's just a shark popping off the page. So it's um it's important to to keep those things in mind and and the the framework the ACES framework I I talk about in the book. Um, I just did a short ignite at ISTE a few weeks ago, kind of um, going through in just the five minutes. But I think that's a great way to kind of pause and say, you know, am I really using this very cool technology um, to its potential? 
Um, a lot of what you've talked about is about getting the product of learning out there. Well, I mean, we've talked about this layering of the realities, but like um, one of the things that I feel like, you know, going back to explain everything and other forms of um, media that we use with the iPads, where it opens up all of these other modalities, is it is it offers us a window into a, a learning process, into student cognition that we didn't really have before. Um, how do you use these triggers or um, QR codes or augmented reality to kind of make learning visible, to, to create uh, windows into you know, the process along the way to the product? Yeah, so for me, when it comes to you know thinking about something like Explain Everything, which is just such a strong example, you know, I really value what that can do, not just for the product, as you mentioned, but for that process and how it can be a window for um, gathering information. When I think about formative assessment and technology or formative assessment in general, it's just, you know, we're on a fact-finding mission. We're looking to see, you know, where misconceptions are, um, where Excel, you know, we see someone excelling, um, where we need to intervene, what strategy is working, what's not working. So from that perspective, I think that it's really powerful to, to have that window in. But then with the scannables, we can give students access to you know, their next steps. So if we have this window into their thinking and we identify those misconceptions and those needs or that opportunity for enrichment, you know, we can be ready to go with distributing resources that are leveled, um, that are differentiated. It might be something that you have in your back pocket as a way to just, you know, here's your cheat sheet to scan and, and see these vocabulary words come to life, right? Here's your cheat sheet for some really interesting ways to push your thinking um, with math because I've seen your screencast and I understand that you understand and you're ready for what's next and there's no point of you sitting back and doing this again today because you're ready to move forward. So when you know I mentioned the ACES framework and A being access to give kids that access to really wonderful material quickly, um, the C, that curation, is really where we're able to use Scannables to distribute, to get differentiated content into their hands, which I think is, is a pretty clear connection from some of the fact-finding that might happen when we are um, listening into student thought process on a screencast. It, this sounds a lot like kind of a personalized, to go back to an older term, of the, the web quest where you, know, you create links to kids very specific to their needs or what we talked to Stephen Downs earlier this year about the difference between personal learning and personalized learning where personalized learning is more of the adaptive learning that tech offers where the tech finds out what kind of learner you are and then offers you your next steps where this seems much more constructivist and, and personal to the, to the individual student. Um, do you have much experience with having students create those next steps of having them kind of identify what their next interest is or what their next, um, you know, more of in a project-based learning format where students get to kind of choose their path? Yeah, and I think it, it comes down to that choose-your-own-adventure um, where you have students who might be moving through a pathway based on interest. Um, you might have those QR codes and augmented reality experiences not be a secret but be something where I know if I'm interested in seeing that heartbeat, I can scan this daiquiri trigger. I know if I want to watch a video on volcanoes, because that's a natural disaster I'm more interested in, right? I can go ahead and, and scan that. Um, and so we, we, are, 
we have that ability to to really empower kids to to go out and interact with content that they want to learn more about. You know, they want to turn to page 75 and not page 45, and that's choose your own adventure. So we can kind of give them the freedom to do that. Um, one thing I think is important to acknowledge is kind of the the devil's advocate position of of the use of scannable tech. You know, sometimes you might say to yourself. Well, you know, I have my kids on Google Classroom, or we're in this type of LMS. We're using Seesaw. And so you know what? QR codes might not be the best way to distribute content to them, right? You might have something set up where you're able to really push links out easily. QR codes aren't cutting down any time when it comes to distributing maybe differentiated resources. But if you're in that BYOD environment where we have a different iPad cart every day or kids are pulling that smartphone out of their pocket, you know, it is a really nice way to give kids access to something that is not um, dependent on a login is not dependent on a clear structure or that one LMS that everyone's signed into. Um, so it does give you some flexibility, especially if you're in a learning space where you are not necessarily meeting with students every day, you don't necessarily have them all submitting work the same way or that type of thing. Um, so I, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge that it might not be the right fit in, in every environment when it comes to distributing resources, but it can really be an opportunity to shine in situations where you have particular obstacles you're looking to overcome. Um, I know a lot of schools are one-to-one. -one. We're not, or the, the school I was most recently at is one-to-two. Um, but in the beginning, we weren't even that. We just had a few iPads, and, and you know, we, we found out how to use them in different collaborative ways. Um, in Chapter 5, which is designing collaborative learning experiences and um, embracing conversations and collaboration, you talk both about the mobility of learning, which you kind of just touched on with scannable devices, but also how it leverages collaboration. Um, I mentioned we've been using iPads, and what we have found is that sometimes the one-to-one -one fit is not really what we're trying to get at, especially when we're trying to get at, at um, cranking up social interaction and providing this catalyst for divided labor. Um, what have been your experiences with tech, and I'm going to borrow some terms from uh, New Literacies, uh, collective intelligence, dispersed knowledge environments, and different ways of getting kids to kind of unpack collaboration? Yeah, so when it comes to one-to-one, to -to -one, and, and as I mentioned, I came from a one-to-one -one iPad classroom, but there were plenty of days where it's, you know, just the odd kids pick up your iPad from the cart, or just the even ones grab your iPad, because there's really something to be said, and, and I saw it, you know, as an educator in the classroom, and, and there's education research to back this up now with, with people investigating education technology tools, is just the power of a shared screen. And the fact that your students are leaning over, they're talking, they're compromising, they're taking on roles. Um, just on Tuesday of this week, I was up working with um, Lit World. They're a fantastic nonprofit based in New York City that does literacy um, programming all across the world. And so they have a summer camp up in Harlem that I was at that I, I pop into. And so I was working with a group of students with Toontastic, which is just a really fun creation tool. We were working on some public service announcements, actually. And so we had enough iPads for the group, but I didn't want everyone to have their own. 
you know, I wanted them to go beyond that think, pair, share, and now turn to your own device, right? I want them to lean over. I want them to talk about the setting. I want them to think about what their characters are going to say together, right? So um, I think that we often feel like there's this trap of needing everyone to have their own device in order to have a successful technology integration. Um, I have an article for Edutopia that was published earlier this year on this idea of shared screens. And it's something that I just, I really think is is dismissed. Uh, it feels like it's the my only choice and it's not a good choice when you're working in environments where you don't have enough devices for everyone. Um, you know, you really do have enough if you are putting those soft skill development as a priority. Yeah, we have a lab space in our library, and um, I, I ran a few tech sprints this year at different grade levels, and on purpose gave four kids one iPad with very specific instructions where they had to, you know, go through some multi-track recording on GarageBand, which is a pretty complex thing to do in a 30-minute time um, period. But what I found was that having four kids and having a rotating, you know, who's got the hands on the iPad for that moment was the fastest way for the kids to learn the process that we were trying to get them through. Um, whereas if they had each had their own device, I'm pretty sure that uh, we wouldn't have been able to accomplish that in 30 minutes. But just cranking up that social interaction, um, they all knew the steps by, you know, when we went in the next week into the classroom to actually make the multi-track recordings, they already had the experience doing it. Um, yeah, and I think the collaboration on an iPad um, can be a little bit easier than the collaboration on, say, uh, you know, I've, I've got my laptop here, but, you know, on a screen where you're not necessarily, you know, looking at the other person, you have something that's kind of dividing your work together, and it's, it's not to say that working on collaborative docs isn't an important skill, right, you're learning about, you know, commenting and, and working together and shared space and all that, but that idea of leaning over that screen together to create um, is so special. And that could be two students leaning together over Explain Everything or collaborating live on Explain Everything. I know um, I'm doing, I do a lot of giveaways in my newsletter and, and all that, and, and I have one that's going out this morning, I think it is, um, with um, Futaba, which is a classroom like language learning game. And, and the same idea, right? You can have four kids around the same device, um, and they can all interact and, and really work together um, as they build that, that vocabulary capacity. So I think there's a lot to be said um, for what can happen. It's not necessarily the um, the end-all, be-all if you don't have one device in every child's hand every minute of every day. No, and I mean, not to pump up, I know you're Apple's distinguished educator, but um, I feel like the iPad is the child's device. Like, it's just sort of made for them. It's tactile, it's visual, um, it takes in various inputs. You can, you know, um, you can be acting in front of it, you can be recording audio in front of it, so it opens up that world of modalities where kids don't have to necessarily type, they don't necessarily have to always depend on writing as their form of showing their understanding. Um, it opens up all of these other windows. Um, I think that's, that's, a, you know, that's such a good point, and I understand the reason for Chromebooks. I do a good deal of BYOD, Chromebook, iPad, mixed device trainings, um, there's a lot to be said to giving kids that practice with keyboarding skills, um, the ability to work in shared collaborative documents. I understand it, and, and I 
I think it's appropriate to give students um, that exposure. But that being said, you know, there's a lot of good uh, good arguments, nice blog posts where people do the the iPad versus Chromebook, and you realize that the portability. Um, beyond just a battery life, right? But the portability, the ability to switch gears, as you mentioned, to a photographer, to a musician, to a storyteller, um, are so fluid. And I think it's hard for people who don't see um, see the iPad as something beyond just a consumable device, right, where they're just reading or watching movies on theirs, it's hard for them to imagine what that can look like in the classroom. And, you know, and, and I'm proud to be part of the, the Apple Distinguished Educator program where there's are just some great things happening with people telling that story of what's happening in their classrooms. Well, and this, um, this shared artifact, you know, sometimes just shared between a pair or, or a group, but also, you know, with Apple TV or with whatever reflector tool you use to throw it up on the screen, um, and like we said, this this new update to explain everything, where now you can have multiple students in a shared space. I feel like the more that mixes with this augmented reality or this scannable technology, um, the more exciting it becomes to create these collaborative environments. You know, if we can project up on the wall and have multiple kids working in that space, you know, all of a sudden we have this like not only immediate authentic audience all over the classroom, but we have everybody. Um, in that adjacent possible mode where they can see what every other kid is doing or they're, you know, it's a group collaboration or a group creation. Um, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I just said yes, yes, I agree. Uh -huh. <laughs> sorry, I'm just kind of like, I know, uh, it's, these are things I know you agree on, but th that to me is the exciting part of, you know, people say, oh, they're just tech tools, but they're not just tech tools in that they do change how, our psychology and so you know sociological thinking around education works, and I think that's part of the really exciting part. Um, we mentioned Pokemon Go and uh, how the whole world that is able to download Pokemon Go it's not available in Colombia yet unless you are uh, downloading it from the U.S. site. Um, but the edtech media has just been blowing up the last year to year and a half about reporting on VR and AR and this looming explosion that we all seem to be looking at, um, classrooms have traditionally been subjective spaces where the interfaces, that the ways of interacting were limited to the walls, the furniture, and the manipulative tools we have. With the introduction of iPads and mobile devices, this has already changed drastically. Do you see this 360 sensory manipulation um, changing that much more how we, how we manage classrooms? Well, it's been an exciting six to nine months. Um, in the education space for virtual reality. I am just blown away with how quickly things have been moving. Um, I know, I think it was at the iPad Summit in San Diego like two years ago, so maybe three years come February or something like that. Um, and I had that Google Cardboard in my purse and I mentioned it to someone who I just assumed, you know, kind of was up on, on all that and they said, you know, I haven't actually used it yet. I haven't tried it. And I handed it to this person and, you know, stuck my iPhone in and, and all I really had was a roller coaster app for them to, to go on. And just their the look on their face when they finally pulled it, you know, the, the viewfinder down, they were just blown away. 
And so I feel like that, you know, it was stagnant at first. We had a slow kind of year for that first time that I had my, you know, Amazon Prime deliver my Google Cardboard. But then, you know, just watching since probably, you know, the end of last year, um, Nearpod that I've always been a big fan of. Um, I just just talking about Nearpod at an ad camp um, earlier this week. Um, they are a, just a fantastic formative assessment presentation tool, really engaging and, and useful for instruction. You know, the introduction of the virtual reality, the 360 field trips that they have now embedded, perfect if you're on an iPad without a Finder. Um, I can tell you, I've you know, hosted professional development for 40 teachers while they're all looking up and down at the coral reefs and, and all of that. Um, it really just transports people to new places. Um, now with the 360 availability on YouTube, the fact that you can use pretty much whatever device you have. The New York Times was sending home virtual, um, the Google Cardboard like units for you to fold and, and stick your phone in for their pretty impressive app. It's just become open and accessible and you don't need more than what you probably already have in your pocket or could borrow from someone else to take a peek at. Um, it's interesting for you know some of the, the Oculus Rift people, right, who are doing this on a, on a whole nother level. I think it's good for them because you're just gonna have people who are buying in at this kind of low quality level that's still really impressive. And I think that this is not going away anytime soon um, from both an education and entertainment space. It's gonna be a really exciting um, few years and, and I'm just pumped to see how fast things are moving um, within the space for this. This makes me think that like a lot of what's changing in learning is how how we frame it. Now I know this idea of the thematic curriculum has been around going back to whole language or John Dewey experiential learning. Um, is there a lot of talk in the Apple Distinguished Educator circles about this kind of needing to frame the narrative of learning? That what we're really talking about is creating experiential learning. Um, events. You know, if you go into a 360 reality space, it's like going on a field trip. And so your teaching strategies should be, I think, kind of like that, whether it's in a PBL type model or it's just a simple, like, this is what we do before, this is what we do during, this is what we do after. But the ways of thinking about these experiences and how they, you know, frame the content of what we're trying to get across, of how they front load all of this cognition, and then what do we do with all of that afterwards? Um, do you see that as like a, a major shift? I do, and I think that you know the term disruptive education, right, is is great if you're ready for what happens next, um, and you're being thoughtful about it, and you know connected to this virtual learning and um, this idea of of the ADE or the Apple Distinguished Educator Program. There's a fantastic ADE, um, Courtney Pepe, who's in New Jersey. I know Rashawn's actually been to her school. We mentioned Rashawn before, and um, she works with a low incidence special needs um, population, so students with a wide range of not particularly common um, special needs within their school building. So um, very exciting population to visit, very high energy building, wonderful um, group of, of children and students. And what they've done is they've done a lot of green screen work to help take these students that for a variety of reasons, you know, might not be able to get to the freak with a frequency at least, the number of field trips um, who might struggle, it might 
be very stressful, it might be anxiety prone to, to go out into certain spaces, yet now they're watching themselves on the screen and there's a green screen behind them and they can be anywhere. And it's, it's just huge. It's huge. And so when you think about this transformation that's happening, you know, among that kind of cohort of that community that I'm a part of and just in general across the country, you know, yes, you know, that green screen's awesome. Um, taking your students on a New York Times or Discovery Education virtual reality trip is pretty special, um, but it's got to be more than just um, the exposure to it. There has to be follow-up. It has to be thoughtful. Um, there has to be discussion around it, and I don't think it needs to be isolating, which I think is some of the fear about putting on a headset. Um, there, you know, there can really be a shared experience when you all look at something for 30 seconds and have your wow moment together. Mm. Now you mentioned green screens. We had one installed in this um, in this lab environment, and we invented something that we just labeled transmedia theater, where kids took stories and then they um, created backdrops or multiple backdrops for those stories. You know, the changes in the plot. Then they had, they trained their actors to act in front of the green screen while in live time it's projecting on another wall. And then there's kids like mixing soundtracks to go with the stories with sound effects and stuff. Totally blew me away, like what the kids were able to produce, you know, through all of these different kind of sensory sensory forms. Very cool stuff. Oh, yeah, and it's it's so interesting too when we when we have an innovative learning kind of design, right? And the kids get excited and they're into it. They're the ones who are the well, what if? Well, what about this? Right? They're they're going to naturally push it to the next level, and I think it's really important to be to be open and ready for that. Um, you know, I know when I first had iPads early on, and iBooks Author had just come out, and I created the first chapter, you know, of a book on I think we were doing on Canadian history. It was one of our fifth grade <laughs> subjects, and you know, I made the first chapter, and um, you know, the kids were pretty. They're like, "This is pretty crazy." You know, they can tap in a video place, right? They were they were pretty impressed. Um, I had a about maybe the next day. It was the well, this. Why doesn't this one do that? Why doesn't this one? Or can we put a video here, right? And I said, "Whoa, way to be." You know, they, they got very critical really fast. And I said, all right, you know, it's not personal. We're on this together. So what is chapter two going to look like? You find the video. You find the image. You email it to me with your caption. You make a case for why this belongs in chapter two. Like, let's turn this and you become the curators of this content instead of just giving me a hard time for a couple links that might be broken on my first try. And so I think that's so important just to make sure in any of those spaces where we're kind of ready for that, um, the natural... Um, you know, what's next with a group of students and then kind of changing that to, to place the ownership on them. Cool. Cool. So, so you've um, um, you, you yeah. are you are prolific. I just got a little bit of feedback there. Let me turn my mic down. Turn my mic down. It's is that a little better? Is that a little better? Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. Okay. Um, um, yeah, but I'm going to keep going. Yeah, but so I'm going to keep going. So, you're all over the place. You're all over the place. You're all over the place. Where can people find you? Find you? Where can they find you? Where are 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 you
Um, so I'd love for people to check out um, my blog, which is classtechtips.com. I just relaunched the website, um, I guess about six, eight weeks ago. So I'm really excited about what's there. So if you looked at it a long time ago, hopefully you'll be a little more impressed with just the layout and all that. Um, so on my website, you'll see there's a special blog section, which has daily content. So every day there's something new. And if you're following along on Twitter, you know you can see that. Um, my Facebook page has been um, a really neat spot for sharing and, and discussion um, the past few months. Um, so that's another social media channel to check out. And then when you go to my site, there's also um, a newsletter. So I send out kind of that seven-day burst on Monday mornings. So if it's um, it's hard to check in all the time, but you like knowing things come to your inbox, that's there. And I usually have um, my Thursday kind of special updates or, or giveaways a couple times a month too. So so that's all there. And then, of course, if you do an Edutopia search for me, you'll be able to find my content. I've been blogging for them for a few years. That's a little bit more of a, a long form than some of the tips on my site. And uh, my book, uh, Deeper Learning for QR, QR Codes and Augmented Reality, a scannable solution for your classroom, is available on Amazon um, and Kindle, so paperback and Kindle. And you can also download it on iPads in the iBook store. And there's a link for that on my site. And of course, just an Amazon search, it'll, it'll pop up for you too. Very cool. Very cool. Well, getting tons of echoes. Thank you very much. 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 Thank you very